may be seated. If you would, turn to John 18 first, and then we will get to 2 Peter here in a little bit. Last week, we began to see uh, Peter's response and description of false teaching. Every bit of chapter 2 is in regard to that. Chapter 1 is all about his great salvation, um, walking in God's promises and the reliability of of Scripture, and then the reason he shared all that is because of uh, what he is dealing with and what the church uh, in these areas of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia and Bithynia are dealing with. And there were those that were teaching that the resurrection, or the actually, excuse me, the second coming of Jesus had already happened, and it brought a lot of confusion. And people were teaching things, and so Peter is writing to this group of believers. Uh, to help them understand that false doctrine, false teaching is going to come into the church. And I want to spend uh, just quite a bit of, actually quite a bit of time this morning by way of introduction before we actually get to it. And we're going to look at a heart of the matter of some things. Uh, when we got back from Nepal in November, um, one of the things that um, some of the leaders there had asked me to do was that next time we came back, they really wanted me to teach on um, expository preaching, which is what we do here. Now, we have modeled that, and I've had a number of conversations, but they wanted a little bit more of like, what are some principles, what are some things about how do we interpret a text and all of that? And so when we got back in November, um, I had an afternoon, one afternoon uh, during one of the days, and, and wrote a bunch of stuff down, and it's kind of been tucked away. And as we began to step into chapter 2 here, um, and I was doing some some preparing work ahead of time, uh, before I even began to do stuff uh, for this week, even even before Monday, there were some things that I was reminded of about that that I'm going to share with us this morning if you are a teacher um, here at LifePoint. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind us of, of a passage last week. Paul wrote to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Paul wrote to Timothy a unique role of the church, and this is what he said. This is 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, he says, if I delay in coming to you, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And then he describes the role of the church in the world. And he says this, the church is a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, this would have been familiar to those that Paul was writing to, to Timothy, because they lived in Ephesus. The temple of Diana or Artemis was there. It had 127 columns connected to a, a marble foundation. All of the columns were marble. It had a roof over it. And so they would have thought about this temple that was there in Ephesus. And Paul, Paul is kind of turning this idea of what they knew about the temples there. And, and he's saying this about the church. Just as the columns stand on a foundation, the church becomes these columns whose role is to uphold and lift up the truth of God in the world. It's what God has called the church. And so, so Paul tells Timothy, this is how you ought to run the church. This is how you ought to behave. And the reason is this, is because the church's role is to be a pillar, vertical, holding up, exalting, lifting up Jesus through the teaching and proclamation of the Word. And it's also a buttress. If you've been to Europe before, or if you've seen pictures, uh, Notre Dame, we've seen pictures of that lately because it's been in the news there in Paris. Outside of Notre Dame, connected to the ground, are these stone things. They're kind of arches that go like this, and they attach to Notre Dame. They're called a buttress. And so Paul says, not only is there the structure there that the church 
lift the columns lift up, but the church is also a support for that and a buttress. And so why is that so important? Well, because in John chapter 18, Jesus tells us something very interesting. Look with me there in verse 37, John 18, 37. Jesus is having a conversation with Pilate, and then Pilate said to him, So you are a king, and Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. What purpose? Here's what Jesus says. To bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Two really important things here that Jesus says. He came to say this, I have come to establish truth. And those who know the truth and those who are in relationship with me, they listen to my voice because, my, because I am truth and because I came to establish truth, they will listen to my voice because they love truth and they are of the truth. And so watch, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, of upholding the truth of God in the written word as it proclaims the greatness of Jesus. And then Jesus says, I have come to establish truth. But there's a reality to our lives, and it's a reality in the church, and it's this, is that sometimes some people, some people drift away from it. And let me read two passages of Scripture. You're welcome to turn there, but I'm going to go ahead and start reading them. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. Paul mentions a guy named Hymenaeus twice in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. In 1 Peter, he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander. In 2 Peter, he mentions a guy named Hymenaeus likely the same one, and a guy named Philetus. And he talks about the straying away from truth. Listen to these words, 1 Timothy 1, 18 and following. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. But rejecting these, some have shipwrecked their faith, and among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I don't know about you, but I do not want the Apostle Paul handing me over to Satan. But these guys had done something so grave and grievous, something outside the purity of doctrine and truth, that it was so bad that Paul had said they've been handed over to Satan so they would learn to not blaspheme. Hymenaeus is mentioned again in 2 Timothy 2, 16 and following. Paul writes, but avoid irreverent babble. Quit talking about stuff that doesn't matter. Just babbling and babbling and fighting. And avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. We know what swerving is if you drive. Something comes out in the road or something appears, turn it. It's dangerous when those moments happen. And Hymenaeus and Philetus had swerved their lives and turned away from the truth. How did they do that? Well, Paul says um, they are saying that the resurrection of the body of the church had already happened. And Paul says they are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So I want you to flow here as we introduction, the introduction. Jesus said, I came to establish truth. Those who are of me, they will listen to my voice because my voice is truth and I am truth. Those who are born again, who are listening to his voice, we have become the church and our role is to uphold the truth in the world. That's what the church's role is, to be a pillar and a buttress of holiness. That's a part of missions. Being upholding the truth is, is missional. 
We know from the Great Commission, go into all the nations and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So you go teach the nations. You start here. You go out from, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, and you teach people what I have told you. And what I would like to do now, before we get into the text in Second Peter, is I would like to speak to the teachers of the church. Or if you have a desire one day, you kind of feel like, um, I think God may be calling me to ministry. He may be calling me to teach or to have a unique role. There's, there's something on my heart when I get older. I would love to lead a women's Bible study, whatever the case is. And so if you help with our youth, um, if you're a life group leader, if you are an elder, uh, Matt is leading our evangelism stuff. Mark is an elder and he leads worship. Whatever kind of teaching role that you have in the church, I want to give some counsel to us that I put together back in the fall that I think is really relevant to us this morning. And so um, I need you to really listen to me. Um, I heard had a number of people come up. I, I wasn't for sure how... Uh, this, this is a little different sermon this morning. I'm not sure how it went over. I had a number of people this morning say, boy, that needs to be said. And uh, I'm really grateful, not just this, but everything that we're going to look at today in Second Peter. So if you're a teacher at LifePoint, these are critical things. We're going to kind of go into seminar session just for a moment. First thing I want to say to you is simply this. We are to always approach the Scripture in deep, deep humility, never pride. We, we, we don't want to come and think that we've got all the answers and we've got all that. We want to come making sure that our belief system, our doctrine, and our belief um, are right. I can think back over in my life. I became a youth minister when I was 20. And if you, can, if you remember when you were 20, did you have everything figured out? Did you, was all your theology and doctrine right? Well, I remember I was a youth minister at a church, and there were some things that I thought um, because I had read stuff and I had made some assumptions and stuff that I thought were true. And then as I began to be a little bit more discipled and sitting under the authority of my pastor and other people in my life, I came to realize there were some things that I believed to be true connected to the Scripture that were not true. So what do you do in a moment like that? Well, let me tell you what you do. There's not really an option. Okay? We don't, in that moment, bend truth to fit our viewpoint. Did you hear me? We don't have a viewpoint and say, okay, truth, you bend to me. We have to do this. No, I bend to the truth. Jesus said, I came to establish truth. I am truth. The, we know this. Jesus said to the Father, when he's praying in John chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth. And then Jesus said, your word is what? What does he say? Your word is truth. So we, we have to adjust to the truth and we cannot sway our lives from the historical understanding of doctrine as well as what we talk about here in the church all the time. Scripture interprets what? Let's say it together. Scripture interprets Scripture. And the reason this is so critical and important is because if we are a teacher and we have a brother or a sister or a pastor or a life group leader, or just a friend who comes and says, hey, you need to think through that a little bit more. Our approach to Scripture in humility would say this, we listen, we examine, is there a biblical basis for this? If there is not, we let it go and we bend our will to the text. And the reason this is so important is because of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, where he said, all Scripture is God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And along the way in my life, I have had to do this. I will say this. Um, I continue to do this in my life as well. I want to continually examine where I am and what I believe and make sure that my, line, my life lines up with accurate teaching of Scripture. Now, let me say this. This is not a cult this morning. We are not all going to see everything exactly alike, but there are some things that we have to see exactly alike, and there's no option about those things. Like an example, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. You may think otherwise. You can think that and be wrong. I don't care, okay? Um, Another viewpoint is this. Should I raise my hands in worship or should I not? And, and so that's one of those things. If you don't want to raise your hands in worship, you don't have to. If you feel like that's a, an authentic expression, then you do that. Those things we don't have to degree, agree on. But there are some things in Scripture that we absolutely have to agree on, and so we must do it. So the first thing I want to say to you, if you're a teacher, you need to approach the Scripture in humility. Listen to the counsel of other people at times along the way. And again, in my lifetime, I've had to bend my will and my way and my previous thinking to the heart of Scripture. The second thing I want to say is this, is I want you to be a Berean if you're a teacher here. Paul was in Thessalonica. They went to the synagogue there. This is in Acts chapter 17. And in Thessalonica, the people just really gave, the Jews really gave Paul a hard time when he went to the synagogue. Uh, Paul and Silas left the synagogue in Thessalonica, and they, they landed in a place called Berea. And this is what it says about the Berean Jews, Acts 17.10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness. But here's how their response was. They examined the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul were teaching were so. So they didn't just do, okay, this guy came in, he was a Pharisee, he's now proclaiming this guy Jesus. I'm not just going to buy everything that he says. So what did they do? They went, they had copies of the Old Testament text. And so as Paul was proclaiming the fulfillment of these Old Testament texts in Jesus, they were the Bereans were going back to the Scriptures and examining those, making sure that what Paul said was accurate. And it says there that a number of them came to faith. If you are a teacher here at LifePoint, you need to be a Berean. You examine the Scripture. You examine what it's taught. And again, we go back to, we approach it in humility. We bend our will to Scripture. The third thing I would like to say to us, if you're a teacher at the church, is not only to approach the Scripture in deep humility, be a Berean, and if you will do those things, it will avoid what I think is one of, the, one of the areas of the church today where there begins to be some false doctrine taught, and it's called speculation. It, it will enable us, and God's ringing the phone to tell us to not do that, all right, to avoid speculation. So if we will approach the Scripture in humility, we will be a Berean, I believe it will keep us from, it will keep us embracing the text as it is written, and it will help us to avoid the grave danger of speculating the meaning of texts or the potential implications that aren't indirectly or directly there. Now, let me just say this. Um, sometimes I read some of the stories, I read some of that, and, and my, 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 I, I have to say, my flesh says, I wish. 
Can we have two more sentences there? Can we have a couple more sentences to kind of explain maybe something that's there? And I think that's even a wrong thing to say. And here's why I say that. I, I don't mean it when I kind of feel that way, and I don't think you do in a bad way. We have to trust that what has come to us is exactly what needed to come to us. Are you all with me? And we need to trust the Holy Spirit's leadership about that. And so um, we should not speculate and guess on certain manners. And what happens is, is there becomes a great danger is that with our speculation, we form a belief system or a personal doctrine that is not implicit in the text and not direct in the text, and it's really important. There's nowhere in the Scripture that encourages us to approach the study of the Scripture in this manner. And I believe what we looked at in chapter 1 of Second Peter is that we have been given all things that per- pertain, that are necessary for life and godliness, and that includes, because of the end of chapter 1, the reliability of Scripture. Now listen to this. Where the Bible is not clear, it's what maybe we wish it would be, or we are desiring it to be a little bit more, we have to learn to live with the tension in the text. We have to learn to live with that and not build a system of belief about it, because here's why. We talked about this at the end of chapter 1. If we begin to speculate on the meaning of certain texts and things of that nature, we do what Peter says not to do. Second Peter 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 20 says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We don't get to read into, we don't get to add to, we don't get to take away. And then he says in verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men were carried along, and they wrote, men were wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we are not to say, Well, I believe this. I know the church has historically believed this, and I know that the text feels that or says that, but I feel this. That is not an approach that we are to do. And I'll say this honestly. There's been times in my past, younger, uh, more bold, and thought I knew things that I was wrong on and I needed to bend. I needed to bend my life back in regard to Scripture. And here's why this is so important. Approaching in humility. Be a Berean. Avoid speculating. And here's why. James 3, 1. If you are a teacher of the Bible, if you homeschool your kids at home and you teach the Bible, you are a teacher of the Bible and you need to hear these words. James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The role of proclaiming, teaching, and explaining the truth of Scripture is no small task. It is actually, I think, one of the most important roles in the history of the world and currently in the world, and it will continue to remain to be that way. And it needs to be seen in the sobering light that it is. And I'm I'm honest when I say this, I tremble every week when I begin to first come up here. This responsibility to proclaim things. And so in your life group, in the youth group, women's ministry, men's ministry, you gather kids together to teach. We have to take and embrace the sobering reality that we are to approach in humility. We become a Berean. We do not speculate because we understand this. We are going to give an account for our lives when we stand before God as to how we told the Scripture and how we taught it. And I have for 10 years now proclaimed things before this body of believers. Uh, I am... 53 now. I started when I was 20. For 33 years now, I have been proclaiming things before people. 
And there's probably some things that God's going to want to talk to me about than I, what I did when I was a younger youth ministry, and I need to be okay with that. Now, again, I have bent my will now to the right perspective, which is what we all have to do. But I just want to remind you, if you are a teacher, there is a grave responsibility in this. And one of the things I often do is that I continue to examine my theology and my doctrine even after all of these years because I know that I am a human being. Do you know that you are? We can make mistakes. We can have some, some wrong views about some things. And so here's the two things that I always try to do. So I'm telling us to this morning, I'm going to tell them uh, to the Nepalis uh, in the fall when I get there as well. We teach what the text says. And one of the other things we rely on is we rely on as well the historical doctrines that the church has fought for for the last 2,000 years, and we stand on those. Now, let me make a distinction. Historical Christianity is not equal to the Scripture. But what historical Christianity has done for us is this, is they have fought these battles for us, contending for the Scripture, that the doctrines that have come to us today, here in 2019, have come to us with a good understanding because the church has relied on the Scripture and the church has taught the Scripture. Some of these people, listen to me, some of these people were beheaded because of their fighting and contending for the Scripture. So I think we honor them in the right way that we look at historical Christianity and we embrace that. Um, it's not equal to Scripture, but it's fighting for. They have fought for the greatness of Scripture. And so where I see my doctrine not right, and I'm speaking of myself, where I do not ever want to stand where the church has not fought for something, or I do not want to stand for the Scripture, interpreting Scripture, I do not want to do there. I want to make sure that my theology lines up with those things. And the reason this is so important is there must be a point of accountability for us as teachers. So all the way from my staff, from the staff of this church. So Mark, Martha, myself, the elders, life group leaders, uh, student ministry, small group leaders, children's leaders, men's leaders, women's leaders, whatever the case may be, wherever it is, you and I have to line our lives up with the biblical revelation in the text, exactly what is there, and we stand where the church has stood. And by the way, this is where we must stand. This is where you want us to stand. We don't want us to stand anywhere else. Last thing before I'm going to show you some clips of what's going on in the world out there today so that so that you can kind of see, is there really bad doctrine going on out there? Uh, I'm going to show you some, some insight of that, and then we're going to look at Second uh, Peter. One of the dangers in the church is the same danger in the world. Every generation thinks they're smarter and wiser than the previous generation, right? It's just kind of always been that way. We think we're smarter than our parents. Our kids are going to think they're smarter than us, and it just goes that way. And this is how it happened in the church as well. And I want to make four statements that are really important. And I really, listen to me, I really need you to hear what I'm about to say. I really need you to hear this. The mindset that's in a person or church and denomination who thinks that because I live now and I have all this information age, and that's the kind of part of the danger here, 
um, that I'm smarter than those from the first century or the third century or the fifth century. I call that pride because I think there's some things that we have to think about. And the first one is simply this. We are not smarter in our day and time than those who walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, and saw the resurrected Lord and heard the resurrected Lord teach. Secondly, we are not smarter than those who wrote Scripture under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So again, we stand only in what the text says. We do not add. We do not speculate. Thirdly, we are not smarter than the Holy Spirit who penned Scripture. So what has come to us has come to us from Him. We've got to live with the tensions that are there in Scripture, and they are there at times. And we just live with it, and we trust that what has come to us is exactly what needed to come to us. And the fourth contention that I want to say is this, is that we should not discount the battles the church has fought to uphold doctrinally from early Christianity to today. Simply because we live now does not mean that we have greater insight than earlier Christians have in regard to sound doctrine. Now, have there been some things discovered along the ways since the first century that have aided in this? Absolutely. So here's what I want to do. Um, This may be a little bit different. I want to show you some clips this morning of some things that are out there. Uh, I'm going to make a few comments of these things because I want you to see them um, just so that you can just so that you can kind of get an idea. All right, let's put the first one up there, Ren. Does God ever cause sickness? Does God ever choose not to heal? What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Um, Jesus was, these are three really easy questions. Which, <laughs> um, Jesus was sleeping in the bottom of a boat in the middle of a life-threatening storm. He was sleeping because the world he was living in had no storm. He was living in a realm of kingdom reality. He was actually living in a realm called peace. When they woke him up, he stood and looked at the storm, and it says he released peace over the storm. Now, how did he release peace? Because he had it to give. We know he had it because he slept in the storm. So you can only give away what you have. Can God give away sickness? No, he's not sick. You can't give cancer if you don't have it. That is heresy. Let me tell you why. In the Old Testament, there's a city called Gath. And in 1 Samuel 5, 9, let me ask you a question. It's not a trick question. Does God have tumors? I'm just asking you, does God have tumors? I hope, shake your head this way, please. Okay? Okay? Do you know what God gave the people who lived in Gath? Tumors. You remember Ananias and Sapphira. Does God have death in him or is he all life? What did the Holy Spirit do to Ananias and Sapphira? Slayed them right there. So God can give things that he does not have. And so that is heresy. That is Bill Johnson. He's the pastor of a church called Bethel in Redding, uh, California. We're going to look at another clip from him here about gold dust. So watch this. And at the end, they had a fire tower start ministering to people, and this glory cloud just came and just started hovering somewhere over the platform. I'm not sure where that one was, but 
there's this cloud. It was cloud. It's hard to explain. It looks like smoke. looks like dust. And when you get close, it's like gold. It's, it's shiny. It's like little flakes, teeny, weeny little flakes. And they're just swirling. The next week, the 19th of August, was a women's conference. And the same thing happened again. I know that that night, it was over in that corner. And then this last Friday night, this cloud appeared again. And this time, it remained there for approximately 45 minutes. It would intensify. It, was, it would get thick. It would, there was at one time, there was like this smoke billowing, and it exploded. It was like a ball. It exploded and just shot off all of the gold. You could, I'm going to show you a little clip, and it'll look like smoke to you. You'll see some little sparkles, but it's... It's like, um, it's, it's like gold flakes, and they all went up. So what he's talking about is they had a conference, and in their worship center in one of the corners of the room, this cloud came, and it was a manifestation of the Spirit. And, uh, and again, these clips I'm showing you, I'm not pulling these out of context. I've seen everything that's kind of there, seen before and after, so that I can be accurate about what I'm showing you today. Um, there is nowhere in Scripture where that is taught. This is something that is taught that they are teaching at their church that is outside the Bible. This church has thousands and thousands of people that go through it every weekend. They have a school of ministry where they teach these things. One of the things they teach at their, their school of ministry is you can go into a room and plead with your guardian angels, your personal angels, to reveal themselves to you, and they will reveal themselves to you. That's what they teach there. There's another thing that they teach there is they teach that God will spontaneously give you gold teeth. One of the things that they proclaim. One of the things their church members practice. Now, while the pastor does not publicly affirm this, he doesn't tell his people to not do it. So their church members do this, and I've seen it. It's all over YouTube. Their church members travel all over the world, and where they go to holy sites, where some of the saints that have gone before us, I, or I shouldn't use the word saints, but those before us who have... Uh, who have really loved God like we love God, and they will lay on the grave sites of these people because they say that the spirit that anointed that godly man or woman is still on that body that's down in the ground, and that spirit can come up upon you. It's all over YouTube. I've watched it. And so we're going to look at one more clip um, of him speaking about an airplane I'm and a friend of his. Lord now, but sitting on a plane, gold just started manifesting, literally just started falling. People could see it falling on him. And the stewardess came over, stunned. She ended up getting saved. People all around him started getting saved because just he's just sitting there. And the Lord would appear upon him, and people would see it, and they would get saved. Just this gold would start manifesting, start falling. It sounds cool, but you don't get to turn it on, and you don't get to turn it off. It's, are we willing to become a sign it's an invitation for him to manifest himself as he pleases. So he's talking about a friend of his who used to be a part of their church who had now died but used to get on a plane and gold would fall on the plane on top of them and the people would see the gold and they would come to faith. That's heresy. How do you come to faith? You believe in who? Gold dust? We believe in Jesus. And the sad thing about that is, and again, I just wanted to show these things so you don't go, don't just talks about this all the time and it's not out there no it is actually out there he is standing right where i stand in his church and he is making a belief system 
the scripture does not speak of. All right, let's look at the next one, Ram. You know, of course I believe in, in Christ as the Savior and all, but, you know, I, th I think, too, Glenn, I've spent a lot of time in India, you know. I've been with a lot of Hindu people. They're nice, kind, you know, people that love God as well. Those of you been in Nepal, I've been to India. Been in Nepal, raise your hand. Go to church. Do those people love our God? They do not. That's heresy. That's heresy, what he says there. They do not love the same God. They love gods that are idols and statues. All right, let's look at the next one, Ram. Uh, this one, where I'll get emails this week on this one. Um, I was a missionary in Germany, and somebody came through and said, hey, you got to read this book. Everybody's reading this. I read the book, and I thought, I'm in Germany thinking, why is everybody reading this? This book is written by a guy whose last name is Young. He's a universalist. He believes that everybody eventually is going to get to heaven. Everybody eventually gets there. Um, he wrote a book called The Shack about a tragic experience in his life um, that was there. Um, the father is an African-American woman. Jesus is a carpenter. Fairly accurate. The Holy Spirit is a woman who has the name of a Hindu goddess. And this book was the number one bestseller for about five years in the Christian bookstores. And it's heresy. I'm sorry if it somehow emotionally moved you. Um, it should not have, just to be honest with you, because it's heresy and it's not accurate. All right, let's go to the next one. I think this is the last one. Elevation pastor is known for making frequent erroneous statements child. in his sermons. The power of God was in Jesus. The healing power of God. The restoring power of God. The same power that made demons flee was in Nazareth, but Jesus could not release it because it was trapped in their unbelief. And there's one thing that even Jesus can't do. One thing that even the Son of God can't do. Even Jesus cannot override your unbelief. That's heresy. In Daniel 4, 34 and 35, Yahweh's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And in John 6, 44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is heresy. This is Elevation Church. Uh, Stephen Furtick, he's the pastor there in North Carolina. Um, every time somebody comes to salvation, guess what God overcomes? Their unbelief. Believers don't believe. Unbelievers come to believe. And so to teach that Jesus does not have the power to overcome unbelief is not accurate and it is not true. Is that the last one? One more. All right, one more. You a salvation that, that you can't you can't counterfeit any other way. Do you believe that only Christians can be in relationship with God? No, I believe that when Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life," in the way I read that, Jesus said He is the He's the road marker, He's the map. So I think God loves people so much that whether they accept or reject Him, He still gracious and he's still moving and he's still giving you massive red blinking lights for mm -hmm. chances to take a, a right turn where maybe you would take a left but I believe God loves people and that's what this whole gospel is based on it's love you take mm -hmm. the love out of it we've got a moral book 
but mm -hmm. the love is what makes it different. And yeah. that, that's a message that, that America's missing. Because we have lots of This is Carl Lentz. He's the pastor of Hillsong, New York. And uh, there's a number of things I could have shown from him. And I wanted to show this clip because of the subtlety. Some of that sounds really good. Some of it is right. But Oprah asked the question, do you believe that only Christians can know God? And he says, no. And that's just not true. You have to be born again to know God. God is the one who opens our eyes to be able to see him and come into a relationship. And another thing that he says there, he says that Jesus is the map. No, he is not. The Old Testament was a map. John the Baptist was kind of a map in a sense, if you want to use that terminology, that pointed to who? To Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of all of history. So what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to show you this, that I'm just not standing up here going, there's some crazy stuff that's being taught out there. This church in New York City, Hillsong, 9,000 people go through, and just about every Sunday they hear stuff like that that's just made up. Bethel Church in Reading, that kind of stuff that you saw about gold dust, that stuff is said. I've watched countless hours of it. Don't want to watch any more of it anymore. I've had enough of it. I've looked enough, and we don't want to do it. And what I want to say to you today, the heart of what Peter is doing here is you don't get caught up in that if you know the Bible. And so that's why I say this all the time. That's why the elders say this all the time. So when we talk about this all the time, we've got to know the Scripture. Now go to Second Peter chapter 2, and he's going to deal with some things that are connected to what we've seen there and what was there next week. Second Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if He did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if you rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for, that, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in power, do not pronounce a blasphemy, a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. All right, let's go, let's go through this. First thing I want to talk about this morning is this, and we'll be done here shortly, in my version of shortly, okay? But it'll actually be, it won't be too bad, okay? The heart of this section, 4 through 11, is this. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God knows how to protect the righteous in a world where lies dominate things, where there's bad doctrine, there's false teaching, there's darkness all around us. God has the knowledge, God has the power to securely and safely bring His people all the way to Himself and protect them. It's called the preserving of God's people. Second thing Peter's talking about in 4-11 through 11 is this. Not only does God preserve His people, but He has reserved judgment for those who reject Him and who mock Him and who do not 
teach the truth. Now, I want to deal with this just for a moment because I think it's absolutely necessary and really important for us this morning to see this. God knows all things. He is an all-knowing God. Listen to some of these verses. 1 John three nineteen. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything, John says. Psalm 147, 5. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 46, 8 and following. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Listen to what God says. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, and my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purpose. I will do it. And Scripture goes on and on in regard to this. God knows everything. There's no limits to it. And so watch this. So in the midst of a world that we don't get, we don't understand, there's uncertainty of the church's future. Are we going to end up being like Europe where there's just blackness and darkness and, and just apathy and empty churches and all of this? Here's the reality of it. God knows Everything from the end to the beginning, he knows everything that is in between. And he can take, he knows how to get you and I all the way through this and we can fully trust him. So there's a power of the trustworthiness of God because if he knows all things and he has the power over all things to bring us through. And then here's what Peter does secondly. He speaks about this reserving of judgment and the preserving of the righteous and he does it in three ways. He gives three illustrations. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, church, listen to me. I want to tell you something. If you're wondering in the midst of all of this bad doctrine, in the midst of what's taking place, and, and again, this, this is what Peter is saying to them. He says, let me give you three examples of how God in the past has taken, he's reserved judgment for those who do evil and speak evil. And so the first example he gives, and this one's fascinating. First example he gives are angels who have fallen. They are called demons now. These demons had once lived in the glorious presence and the light of God. And with Satan, they chose to rebel against God. They were cast from heaven. Their dominion now becomes earth. And they came down here on the earth. And when they got down here on the earth, these, some of these demons, they began to do something with women that was so violent decided that he was going to that's the place mike right there in case we're wondering anyway i'm not going to step over there um they did something so vile and evil that god locked them in a prison that they will stay in that prison from that time all the way back in noah's day and they will be in that prison until god unlocks them and throws them at the great white judgment in revelation 20 throws them into the lake of fire which we know to be as hell what did they do that was so evil they began to have sex with women and create children. What's so significant about that? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, God says this to Satan. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and the seed of the woman. From the seed of the woman is going to come one. From her flesh is going to come one. And the indication there is there will be a divine one and there will be a human one will come. And you will strike his heel, Satan, but he will crush your head. 
So this has been a historical understanding of this. It's a difficult text. It's an interesting text. It's a fascinating text, but I want you to hear this. These demons were trying to corrupt the human nature of Jesus. Because if they could create angelic beings and human beings at the same time, then you do not have a fully divine Messiah and a fully human Messiah. And so they are trying to corrupt this because we know this, that you come all the way to the New Testament and we celebrate it this morning. In his body, we take bread and we take juice. Jesus bore our sin in his body. And I think you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 and the demons are trying to corrupt this coming of what was going to happen is that there was going to be one that gave a sacrifice and he needed to be sinless and then he also would offer his body and so they're trying to corrupt this. We know this also when you go to Hebrews 10 and by that, we, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. And so they come and they're trying to corrupt this and God casts these demons into this place of utter darkness and they will be trapped there until, it, until the very end. Then Peter uses a second example. He uses Noah. Listen to this. This, one, this one's amazing. Eight, 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 eight people believed on the earth in Genesis 6. Eight. I can look across this room and I see a bunch of strong believers in Jesus in this room. Can you imagine on planet earth? Eight people and eight people were saved. What did God do as Noah preached and he was a herald, a proclaimer of righteousness for 120 years. He built the ark and he told his generation, repent, repent, there's coming a flood. And they mocked him and they didn't listen to him and nobody listened. And so at the very end, only eight, Noah and seven members of his family were saved. And so watch this. Peter uses this illustration and you talk about a dark day. You think our day is dark. Can you imagine Noah's generation? You could only find seven other people outside of you that believed in God seven that's it everybody else rejected but he brought those eight safely through but he brought judgment upon the whole world through this worldwide flood and he brought judgment and brought this starting over things and so so Peter's saying this listen here's the reality you need to know this God brought judgment upon Noah's generation God brought judgment upon these angels who did evil and and did awful things and made this proclamation and tried to stop the coming of the of the of the of Jesus and then he says, here's a third one, then God brought judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It's really interesting. I was studying this week. Um, do you know that historically, until, it wasn't until about um, 15 or 20 years ago, there was no outside of the Bible evidence that Sodom and Gomorrah existed. But then they found a tablet in Syria that said the people of that region used to go and trade with the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there became an archaeological evidence that Sodom and Gomorrah actually did exist. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah, what was their sin? Well, it was much like the sin in Noah's generation. It was very sensual in nature, like the false teachers. And it was the same type of behavior that was going on in, in Noah's day. And what was their punishment, Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, they were turned into the cities of, of, into ashes, and they've never been raised again. 
you know, we think about that area, there's the Dead Sea. It's full of what? What's that water full of? It's full of salt. God rained pillars of fire and salt. You know what's there? Oil and salt. Can't grow anything there. And it's, it's left behind evidence that God has brought judgment upon those cities that would be an everlasting judgment upon them. Now watch this. God is, <clears throat> through Peter, is wanting us to know this. You can rely on the Scripture. You can rely on the Scripture. There's going to be false teaching. It's going to be among you. But you need to know this. In God's timing, He has shown evidence in the past. He's going to bring judgment on those who hold these false doctrines and these false teachings that lead people astray, away from the truth of God's Scripture. But not only is He going to bring judgment upon them, God's going to protect His people. And so he gives these two examples that are connected with that. And one was Noah and his family. God saved Noah and his family. Horrible, horrible, dark generation. God rescued them, brought them through the flood, through the ark, through this, through this picture. The ark becomes this picture of the salvation of Jesus, their safety, brought through the flood waters. And so, so Peter is saying, listen, God's going to bring his judgment, but he's also going to do this for his people. He's going to protect his people. And Noah was a true believer in God. We know this from, from Hebrews 11, verse 7, that he believed in the one who was to come. And so out of all of the pre-flood world, of those millions of people that were there, there were eight that were rescued. And Noah was in his generation a barking dog at night. Don't you love barking dogs at night? Just barking out saying, somebody's around. Bobcat's here. Coyote's here. Somebody's here. And just barking. And Noah was that in his generation, and nobody listened. Nobody listened. Then he gives a second illustration how God rescues his people, and it's Lot. Now, this is a tough one. You ever read about Lot in Genesis? Does he seem very righteous? He doesn't. But Peter shares here, and we've got to, again, here's, here, look, here's one of those tensions. You read Genesis, and you read Second Peter here, and Lot's not very righteous in Genesis, but Peter is saying here, he was righteous, and so there's a tension with those things, and we've got to live with that tension. That is, God saw Lot, even though he doesn't look glamorous in Genesis, there was a righteousness about Lot that the Holy Spirit allowed Peter to write. And so, everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah was killed. Lot's life, wife, his life, his wife, his wife loved Sodom and Gomorrah because what did she do as they fled? She looked back. She couldn't get her eyes off of it. Lot was rescued and saved. And so Peter is saying to these believers in Asia Minor, he is saying this, listen, you live in a corrupt society, being tempted to unfaithfulness, to follow false teachers, and to believe the mockers who deny the second coming of Christ or say that it has already happened. And Peter says, listen, God's going to deliver you in the midst of this. You just be a pillar and a buttress of truth and you walk in God's ways and God is going to deal with ungodliness and He's going to protect you. And you know why? Because God is our rescue. And that's what He says in the first part of verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Church, we are not our hope. Our good works are not our hope. Life point is not your hope. Jesus is our hope. 
And He's got the power to rescue us in the midst of a dark world, to bring us through, to bring us to safety. And so the person in the pathway of our rescue in the midst of a world that rejects Him, mocks Him, etc., God is our rescuer. And so we trust in Him. He, he grows us in the midst of the trials that refines our character and causes us to, to understand His Word more. But He also knows how to rescue His own and bring us through. He did it with Noah. He did it with Lot. He did it with Jeremiah. He's done it with Paul. He's done it in our lives. Has not God brought us through some really dark things in your life? God does this. And so, so Peter is saying, listen, the world's this way. The world's going to be this way. You're going to have this kind of teaching among you. And they're going to mock what you believe. They're going to say to you, don't believe that. This, that's so 3,000 years ago stuff. No, this is 2019. We're smarter now. We, we, we know so much more. And we need to know this. No, we, we stand at the crossroads and we ask for the ancient paths. Jeremiah 6.16. We ask where the good way is, and we walk in it, because God knows what He is doing, and it teaches us that sometimes we may face long years of waiting. Noah, it was 120 years. For Lot, it was a number of years before God intervenes to, re- intervenes to rescue us, but God will rescue us in His timing. And fourthly, is that there's a day of punishment coming. God is going to bring about the punishment. We have a tree right out here in the front of our church property. Um, by the little swingy thing that we have there, whatever that's called, swingy thing. It's a pear tree. And pretty soon the pears are going to kind of start sprouting. But if you ever notice our tree in the wintertime, which direction do the branches point? Everybody ever noticed? Straight down to the ground. You know why? Because over time, uh, Debbie Sisko's parents planted that pear tree that's out there. And... Uh, it's still making pears every year. But over time, nobody took care of that tree. And because they didn't prune it, the limbs didn't get big enough. And the fruit was so heavy that it what? It caused the branches to do this. And so this is the way they grow. This word here, that and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, is a pruning word. And basically what it means is this. Just like you would do with a young tree, young trees, fruit trees, you don't allow them to grow fruit early on. You prune them until they're older and the branches are bigger and they can handle the fruit. God here, Peter is saying, is pruning false teachers and false doctrine to prepare them for the perfect judgment, the pruning that he has in store for them where he will eventually one day destroy them. And then as we close, Peter gives a portrait of church seducers. So in verse 10 he says, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, and they despise authority, they are bold and willful, and they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So let me deal with this for a second, and we'll be done. False teachers. He says three things about them. One, they have defiling passions. Last week he talked about that they're greedy. They're just about getting things from those that they lead. They have defiling passions. They are sensual in nature. Secondly, they despise authority, he says. And so especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions. And, they, and he says, and despise authority. This word despise means to throw something down or to 
put your nose up at something to kind of turn it up like you're arrogant and you're more important and you see other things as inferior. So these false teachers see the Word of God and the teaching of God and historic Christianity as, as something that's not true, it's not valid, and so they put their nose up at it. They don't hold it to be, to be something to be walked in. And so um, they despise the authority and, and boy, do not challenge them because you're in trouble. I have, uh, I have had friends, I was telling somebody this morning, I've had friends in times past, and they didn't go to, they didn't go to uh, churches that taught false doctrine, but uh, they went to churches that didn't do the right thing. I had friends who worked at churches, and they showed up on a Monday morning, and the locks had changed on their office, and they weren't told that they didn't have a job anymore. It's just not right to do stuff like that. And there are churches out there today that are proclaiming, and despising, don't challenge me, can't say anything, and, and that's the case. There is um, what's well, a number of things connected to this Bethel church of people who have been just severely, deeply wounded. Can you imagine being told that um, you can go into this room and your angels will show up and you can see them, but they don't show up? Can you imagine how devastating that will be to your faith when there's other people in the room who are saying, well, I've seen my angels. See, that's a despising of authority, and there's been people that have talked to them about that, and they just continue to do it. And so there's false teachers despise accountability and authority. Third thing that Peter says here, they dread nothing. They just press on in their blasphemy. So that's where he says they're bold and willful, and they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, I need to deal with this as we finish. If you look at the end of verse 10, do you see the phrase in your scripture, glorious ones? Do you see that? I'm not sure what your translation, ESV says glorious ones. And you look in verse 11, then he says this, whereas angels, there's no, there's no uh, article before that in the Greek, though greater in might and power, verse 11 says, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Peter's going to give another illustration here, and let me tell you what it is. It's pretty fascinating. So these False teachers are so bold and willful, they despise authority. And then, if you've ever watched charismatic pastors and charismatic churches, they love to talk about the demonic world, and what do they do? They speak to demons. It's a hallmark of the Assembly of God um, charismatic movement, speaking to the demonic. Now, throughout the centuries... This text has vexed many theologians. What in the world does verse 10 mean, glorious ones? And then you come to verse 11, and the indication there is holy angels. So who is the end of verse 10? Well, if you remember, Paul calls Satan in Ephesians 6 the prince of what? The power of the air. So there's, there's even a language that Paul uses there that gives got to be really careful here with my language that gives a uniqueness to the created angels and how they originally were and yet now they've chosen to rebel against God and they are in this state and they are spirit beings they're not like us fleshly beings now watch this what's what what's what Peter is saying here there are false teachers who speak to demons and pronounce judgment upon demons. And then when you come to verse 11, he says, 
but there are angels who do not do this. Whereas angels, though greater in power than false teachers and though greater in power than fallen angels, the holy angels do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the demonic before the Lord. Who said the Bible is not interesting? Is there an example of that in the Bible? Yep. Do you remember when Moses was told he wasn't going to get to go to the promised land and the indication is he died? And Joshua began to lead the people into the promised land. Well, Jude, the book right before Revelation, a one-chapter book, has something interesting there. Let me just read it, Jude 8 and 9. Yet in like manner, these people also, false prophets Jude's writing about, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme, Jude says, the glorious one. Same thing that Peter says. So 2 Peter 2, Jude, Scripture, interpret Scripture. What are they talking about? They're talking about demonic angels. Glorious ones, though it may sound weird to us, that's the context about the angels. So he says these false teachers, Peter says it, Jude says it, they defile their flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones, the fallen angels. But watch this, verse 9, Jude 9, when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, and they were disputing about the body of Moses, Michael the archangel did not presume to speak to Satan and pronounce a judgment on Satan. He did not pronounce a blasphemous judgment to Satan, but he just simply said this, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord's going to deal with you, the Lord's going to bring judgment on you. Now watch. Conflict between Satan and Michael over the body of Moses. Can you imagine what that moment was like somewhere on a mountain? And we know Satan has no goodness in him whatsoever. He's the father of lies. And you know that he was going to want to do something with the body of Moses to corrupt. Because that's what he does. And Michael said, uh-uh. Moses' body, I'm going to take it. And so there's a contention with them. And here you have angels, a holy angel and a godless angel fallen, arguing over a human body. And again, who said the Bible is not interesting? And Michael, the holy and powerful angel, watch this, never brought and spoke a judgment against Satan, but he left it in God's hands and just said, the Lord rebuke you. And Peter is stating here that false teachers are so bold that they are not afraid to do what holy angels won't do. There's a sickening boldness to that. See, the angels understand submission much better than false teachers do who are self-willed and arrogant. So what do we take away from today? God's reserved judgment for the ungodly, and He's going to take care of them. What's He going to do with His people? He's going to bring us all the way through. He's going to take care of us. What's going to happen in the future of America? I don't know. Does it? I don't know. It's tragic to think about what it could be. But we are in Him. We are protected. Let's just stand and be a pillar and a buttress of truth and take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other po- po- uttermost parts of the world. Yeah.
And this last word, what do you do with this talk this morning when you walk out the doors? Well, I showed you video clips, and here's the great danger of 2019. There's podcast after podcast after podcast. There's Christian radio. I think, I think in my wife's car, there's like seven or eight Christian radio stations in the Metroplex where you can listen to all kinds of stuff. You can just listen to all kinds of stuff. You can, you, can, you can listen to whatever. You can go on YouTube today. You can go to church's websites. You can watch everything. And I would just say this. Is what you are watching, is what you are listening to, is what you are reaching, websites you are researching on, are they standing on historic Christianity and scriptures interpret Scripture? And if they are not, then you need to stop. You need to stop it and get back to this because we stand in the written text and we do not want to be arrogant enough to add to, take away, suppose, presume. We want to stand in such a way that the Spirit was wise enough that the words that have come to us are clear enough and good enough. And so let's stand there, discern the Spirit's. Listen to them and move away from the things that are not true. Let's pray.